Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Mike Rosenberg from Columbia Credit Union. Mike says they trust what they see and hear on OPB, and that aligns with Columbia Credit Union's brand. This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. 12 to 17-year-olds in Oregon use cannabis, cigarettes, and illicit drugs at higher rates than the national average. And as fentanyl has hit the West Coast, Overdose death rates for teens here have climbed quickly over the last five years. State law says schools have a role to play in this. It requires that districts have comprehensive substance use prevention plans in place. But no one had taken a statewide look to find out what schools are actually teaching until now. Emily Green is a manager at the Lund Report. She's been talking to teachers, students, and experts to find out what districts are doing to try to prevent or delay substance use. She joins us now, along with OPB's health reporter, Amelia Templeton, one of her partners on this project. Emily and Amelia, welcome back. Thanks Thanks so much. Amelia, first, I just want to start with some of the data. What does it show about substance use disorder among young people in Oregon? I think there's three data sets that are helpful. There's Oregon Student Health Survey, and then there's a national survey on drug use and health, and finally, overdose data from the CDC. So to take the state survey data first, about 11 or 12% of high school juniors report vaping or using cannabis in the past month. About 7% report binge drinking, and about 1% reported misusing prescription opioids in the past month. A caveat to all of this, the students that we interviewed told us they think that survey is undercounting use because students don't really like to share their their drug use with adults. Um, From the national survey, we know that 12 to 17-year-olds in Oregon are using cannabis, cigarettes, and illicit drugs at rates that are higher than the national average. And also use rates go up significantly after high school for the 19 to 24-year-old age group. And then finally, and you know, most concerning, as fentanyl has become a part of the drug supply in Oregon over the past five years, the risk of overdoses for young people has gone up fivefold. Uh, and in the last year that we have the full data for, in just the 15 to 19-year-old age group, there were at least 26 overdose deaths. Hmm. Emily, what did you hear about this from a teacher you talked to, a science teacher Uh, named Zach Lazar in South Eugene High School. Zach Lazar has been teaching science at South Eugene High School for about six years. And he said that he's noticed that since kids came back to school following the pandemic, it seems that a greater number of them seem to be struggling than before. And he said it makes him sad to see how easy it is for kids to go down the wrong path. And he said in just the past two years, he's lost three of his students to drug-related deaths. You focus, as I mentioned in my intro, on the role that Oregon's almost 200 school districts play in this. What are they required to do under state law? So under Oregon state law, schools are required to have a quote-unquote comprehensive substance use prevention plan in place, and they're supposed to update it every year based on the most recent research. Right now, Oregon kids are facing an increasingly dangerous drug supply and a range of unparalleled external pressures that are leading to higher rates of anxiety and depression, 
So we wanted to know, what are schools doing to adapt? What are they doing to help prevent and delay drug use in this new reality? Are they living up to the letter of the law? And given the gravity of the situation, are they using evidence-backed programs that are likely to actually work? Well, we quickly learned that the Oregon Department of Education doesn't keep tabs on what specific programs are in use. So we partnered with the University of Oregon's Catalyst Journalism Project to survey districts across the state asking them what they teach for substance use prevention. And that was no small task. We couldn't have done it without the help of Elizabeth Yost, a student journalist with the project who spent a lot of time over the last six months repeatedly reaching out to districts to gather this data. Hmm. Well, how likely is it that districts are using evidence-backed substance use prevention curricula? So districts have a lot to choose from, and pretty much every curriculum out there makes the claim that it's evidence-based, but evidence-based can mean a lot of different things. What's important is figuring out what is the strength of the evidence, and that's a huge question, and it's not one that we were trying to evaluate on our own. So there are four different clearinghouses, two of them are read by the federal government and two are independent, that look at these programs and identify the ones that meet some minimum standards of efficacy. So we consulted with these clearinghouses to see what they said about the programs that are in use in Oregon. And it turns out that most districts, 60%, aren't using any program at any grade level that has been certified for meeting even their lowest bar for evidence. So, you know, first, we just really wanted to get this information out there because up until now, there was no easy way to look up what your kid's school was doing for prevention. So we built the searchable database, and now any parent can select their school district, see what prevention program is taught, and see how we rated it. And listeners can find a link to that data portal in the story about our investigation that was published on OPB, or they can find it by going to thelundreport.org. Well, what did you hear from local or national experts about the kinds of curricula that are most effective, the the lessons that, that make it, say, more likely for a student to delay the age at which they'll try drugs? So prevention science is fairly new, but already scientists have learned quite a bit. Uh, They told me that fear tactics don't work and neither do one-time events like assemblies or a classroom visit from, say, Officer Bob. But what does work are embedded programs or more lengthy curricula that focus on building social and emotional skills, like developing empathy, empathy, building confidence, and knowing how to self-regulate. So in middle school and high school, that kind of looks like combining those lessons with lessons about substances and peer pressure and resistance. Um, That's been shown to work. And so do programs that counter peer rejection. And then when you're looking at early elementary school, programs that never mention drugs, but that focus on self-regulation and learning to identify emotions are considered some of the best approaches to substance use prevention. Hmm. Okay, so that's what experts say districts should be doing. But if, as you found out, 60% of districts are not using evidence-based curricula, what are kids in general being taught? So school districts are taking a really wide variety of different approaches to this. 
Um, districts listed more than 90 different branded curricula and programs related to prevention. And then there's all the other stuff like assemblies, lessons on fentanyl and social media campaigns. Uh, in terms of the content that students are getting, it's all over the map from a new version of D.A.R.E. that's still taught by police officers on one end to a harm reduction focused curriculum on the other. And then there's really a range of strategies as well. About 20% of districts are essentially teaching a chapter in a health book for their strategies. And others have found ways to adopt evidence-backed programs. And then many are deploying different mixes of teaching supplements that haven't been well-researched. And I think it's also important to note that districts are all adopting these social-emotional learning programs um, following a law that was passed in 2021, although we found that these programs really run the gamut too in terms of how evidence-based they are. Hmm. Amelia, you talked to a group of students who are in a, a drug prevention club at Westland High School. What did you hear from them about why they wanted to be in this club? Well, they said high schoolers, you know, often tune out messages coming from adults, but they are concerned about the degree of substance and alcohol use in their school. And they're sort of hoping that the message might land differently if it's coming from other teens. Um, some of them specifically said they were concerned about younger kids in their life they know or friends. And they're sort of trying to channel that into doing something good. And for some kids, it was also about their family history. That might mean, you know, a parent in recovery or one club member is the daughter of a local paramedic who has treated a lot of people, um, for overdoses, and, uh, you know, she carries Narcan with her. So they had a, a variety of different reasons for coming to it. Hmm. What did you hear about just how prominent these issues are for kids these days? Well, that group of students told us that even after decriminalization in their school, experimenting with, you know, street drugs, harder drugs is very much outside the norm. But cannabis, drinking, alcohol, vaping, you know, that's nicotine. Those things are just extremely common. And they were kind of shocked at how common it was. But cannabis, drinking, vaping, these things they said were really just common. One of the students, Aiden Sauer, a sophomore, described vaping in particular as just a big part of high school culture. When I was in middle school, the biggest scandal of the year was a group of people getting caught vaping in the bathroom. But now that happens daily, like every class period. And now that we've gotten older and everyone has more access to things, more freedom, it's all so much more in our faces now. So what are the members of this club? And this, uh, again, this is in Westland High School. What are they doing to try to get their classmates to make safer decisions about alcohol or drugs? A lot of it is what you'd expect from a school club. So monthly meetings, speakers, videos that they're sharing on their school's broadcasting system. Holly Pierce, who's a senior, said that what she's really trying to do is start a conversation about drinking and substances with zero judgment so that there's no shame for kids who are curious, but also no shame for, you know, young people who opt not to try these things. We have to just give everyone the the tips and just the knowledge and the education about it. And specifically, also just having everyone kind of know about 
themselves and their family and their genes and what they're susceptible to so that you can make an informed decision. That's what I think it really comes down to because you can't force them to not do drugs. You can't force them to not drink at a party. Like it's just having the knowledge because a lot of kids with that knowledge will end up saying no. Emily, I'm curious, what stood out to you in terms of the the differences of what these kids are learning about drugs and alcohol in classes versus what they have been hearing in this club? We learned that this group of kids got a lot of what sounded like scare tactics from the lessons they were getting at school. They mainly learned about drugs and health class, and they learned that they're bad for you and it's bad to do them. Um, For Clara Alexander, a 14-year-old freshman, this had some implications for the people in her personal life. In my neighborhood, we had like block parties and it would usually be like all the kids went together and they ate food and they talked together while the parents either drank or smoked. And when I had the education about these people being in like in quotes bad people, I like it made me wonder if if my dad was a bad person or if the people who live next door, if they were bad people too. Like before I learned that these actually weren't bad people, they were hurting, um, I'd wonder, are my friends that are older than me, or are my cousins, are they bad people too? It's really disappointing that that's the way that they try to convince people to not use. It doesn't make anything any better. You've you've learned that these are people that are hurting. Yeah, I have. Is that something that um, being in this club has helped you learn, or is that have you learned some of that from school, or where did that knowledge come from? I've I've learned it both from my mom's sobriety and this like this club has solidified that. Hmm. Amelia, the broader context here that our organ listeners probably need no reminder of, but but it's just worth mentioning in the context of this conversation. The broader context is that we are in a state where voters have decriminalized the possession of all illicit drugs, including meth and heroin and fentanyl. How does that play into what we're talking about? A couple of ways, I think. First, um, you know, I think it adds some urgency to, to trying to figure out how to support young people navigating these decisions. Most of the students we talked to said, you know, this is kind of an extra confusing issue right now. Um, and then second, the curriculum that have evidence behind them, and often that might look like, you know, a clinical trial in some other state 10, 15 years ago that showed that kids who went through the curriculum were less likely to initiate smoking or drinking or started later. Most of those trials haven't been done in a state like Oregon where drugs are fully decriminalized. So I think it's a little hard to know um, fully uh, what is effective now. And I would add to that that this is exactly why prevention scientists say it's so important that communities and school districts, whenever they implement any kind of prevention strategy, program, or curricula, that they track whether or not it's actually working in that setting at that point in time. Hmm. You know, speaking of Measure 110, Emily, Portland Public Schools, I learned in your reporting, It's one of three districts in the state that uses a curriculum developed by the New York-based pro-decriminalization advocacy group that funded the Measure 110 campaign. What are PPS kids being taught? Yeah, so 
PPS teaches this program, it's called Safety First, and it was promoted as the first harm reduction-based curriculum for high schoolers in the country. And it teaches the effects of drugs on the body, but it also gives advice for safer drug use, such as start low and go slow when trying a new drug for the first time, don't mix drugs. Um, Last spring, PPS's use of the curriculum sparked some concern because it was teaching lessons that were designed by the Drug Policy Alliance, which is an advocacy group whose mission is drug decriminalization and legalization. It also backed Measure 91 to legalize cannabis in Oregon. It's not, its mission is not childhood education. And I think this shows in a study that the Drug Policy Alliance funded. Among other things, it measured the program's success in increasing students' level of drug policy advocacy after being taught with the curriculum. Hmm. Amelia, fentanyl is such a new scourge in terms of illicit use and, and widespread availability Um, And I imagine that that the process of assessing any curriculum to know if it's effective, if there's evidence to to back it, that has to take some amount of time. So do we even know what is more likely to work in this age of these, you know, super powerful everywhere synthetic opioids? Yeah. I think we I think we don't. I think that's another area where, you know, there's a sort of rapidly evolving situation. And the state does require uh, schools to teach specific content around the dangers of synthetic opioids and counterfeit pills, um, which I think makes makes good sense, um, you know. But at the same time, we don't have a lot of information about if the way that we are teaching those things is effective. Um, so that's another place where coming up with some way to try to track is this changing the decisions students are making is important if we're going to take the time to um to teach them to, these things in the classroom i will say you know one thing we do know works uh to counter fentanyl is naloxone and there's also a push to get more naloxone into schools lots of uh fentanyl overdoses are witnessed by other people um, and so, you know, there's prevention education, but there is also obviously room for room for harm reduction in this conversation. Hmm. Emilia, how did the high schoolers you talked to talk about peer pressure or just, you know, social norms? I was really interested in that, in part because it's hard for me to imagine like my past self in high school being willing to join a drug prevention club, even if I was like totally that kid. Um And yeah, they definitely feel peer pressure. The president of the club, a senior, Jonathan Garcia, told us that it was really hard at first to choose to be the face of, you know, don't do drugs in high school. But he has found a lot more acceptance than he was expecting. Um, Here's what he said. In the beginning, it was like, oh, like, what are people going to think of me? Like, am I going to get invited to parties? Am I going to do all that stuff? Then later on, and as I got more involved, I was like, no, this is good. And I don't care if people don't want to be my friend because this is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing that I'm speaking up for this issue and we need more people to do it. And so it was more of like a, in the beginning it was like, oh, I'm going to lose friends, but I haven't. It's been more of like a thank you because no one else would. So do do you get invited to the parties? Yes, still do. (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, a perfect follow-up question to ask. Kudos for that. Um, and it was what, a credible answer, too. If you met this guy, you totally believed that he can pull that off. <laughs> I can also say he's a very fast talker. Emily, what did you hear from experts about the age at which these lessons should start and and what's happening in terms of, of different grade levels in Oregon? Experts say prevention programs should start as early as preschool. And again, I'm not talking about um, drug-focused programs. We're speaking about social-emotional learning-focused programs. Uh, we just looked at K-12 through for this project, and what we found is more than half of Oregon's districts aren't using evidence-backed programs at the elementary school level. And many are relying on health class to get the job of prevention done. And districts told us there are challenges in even teaching just that. There are a lot of competing priorities, and health and substance use prevention just aren't rising to the top of the list for a lot of districts. But we also found that about 38% of districts are using programs that have some science backing them up in their elementary schools. In fact, we visited an elementary school in Forest Grove that's made it a big priority, embedding the program into every classroom and into the school's teaching culture. Hmm. What about parents? I mean, what role should parents play in all of this? You know, one of the kind of incredible things that we saw in a lot of the districts where really robust prevention is happening is that it's being driven at the grassroots level by teachers and by parents who decided to get involved. You know, like most states, Oregon schools are local controlled. So schools have a lot of autonomy in what they want to teach. Um, so when parents get involved and start going to board meetings and lobbying their districts for better prevention practices, they can make a real difference. Uh, I think Westland High School is a good example of that. The kids that we heard from today are members of a really robust club that's led by Pam Pierce. She's the mother of three kids who grew up in the Westland Wilsonville School District, and she got involved after researching what prevention programs her kids were getting. And now she's running this prevention club that has, if you can believe it, more than 180 teenage members just at that high school. Hmm. Emily and Amelia, thanks very much. Thank you, Dave. Thanks, Emily Dave. Green is the managing editor of the Lund Report. Amelia Templeton is OPB's health reporter. Finally today, managing producer Shiraz Sadiq joins us to read some of your recent feedback. Hey, Shiraz. Hey, Dave. Last week, we had a lively debate about Oregon state flag. Some Oregonians want to keep the current design with the state seal on one side and a beaver on the other. But others think it's time for an upgrade. We asked what you thought, and we got a lot of responses. Denise from Oregon City left us this voicemail. My thoughts are, hey, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. We are unique in the United States that we are the only state that has a two-sided flag. I think that it is uh, pretty amazing, and I volunteer at a house museum, and we fly it every chance we get, and we tell a story about uh, the state flag and the fact that it is unique. Kristen Gustafson wrote, I'm fine the way it is. Are we so flush with cash that we can afford to replace them all? Are we so short on problems to solve that we have time and resources to spend on flag design? Barbara Lance agreed. She said, seems like a waste of time and money. Leave it beaver. Jonah from Ashland left us this voicemail. I have a lot of thoughts about the, the Oregon flag question. I'm a big fan of getting rid of the incongruence between the front and the, and the back of the flag. 
I also think incorporating the blue and green from the forests and beautiful coasts that we have here would be fantastic for it. And I'm also a big fan of bringing in some iconography from the Oregon Trail, like a big uh, wheel from the old trailers or, or covered wagons. But not everyone was a fan of a settler iconography. Josie Hanneman wrote, We can take the wagon and oxen off at the very least. In its place, I'd love to see something more representative of Oregon and her people. And Rob from McMinnville left us this voicemail. I would like to see our native plant, Camasia qualmas, have primary placement on any new state flag. Camas is a member of the lily family and produces beautiful purple flowers on a single stem. It also has an underground bulb that served as a staple food for indigenous people. Camas was common and cultivated by Native Americans from the Midwest to the Pacific Coast. Meriwether Lewis commented in his journals on June 12, 1806, and I quote, The Quamash is now in bloom, and from the color of the bloom at a short distance, it resembles lakes of fine, clear water. So complete is this description that at first sight I could have sworn it was water. Unquote. We talked last week about the rough year that Oregon craft breweries had in 2023 with more than 30 businesses closing up shop. Jacob Holgate said having 500 different IPAs on the market doesn't help. And Corey Vrecken Martin wrote, it's an oversaturated industry that's been waiting or fearing collapse for decades. Owen Thornhill said, one local tap house closed near my work. I just don't have that much disposable income in the last year. Beer prices have gone up more than wine or liquor. Barbara Gordon said, we quit going to the local September Fest in Corvallis a few years ago when I couldn't even find enough varieties of beer to try that would use all the tickets that came with the entrance fee. If I'm going to drink beer, I want it to taste like beer. No citrus or floral or sweet notes. Just beer. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the challenges facing Oregon's animal shelters. Judy Lynn Rossett wrote, I volunteer at our local shelter. They adopted out over 2,000 pets last year. We are a designated no-kill facility. We are currently over double capacity. She added, I foster adoptable animals as well as hospice cases. Special needs animals are my specialty. I have two blind dogs, one deaf dog, and two deaf cats. And Shandell Beers, the vice president of the Pendleton Animal Welfare Shelter, wrote, We are a no-kill shelter, but all shelters are places with finite resources. When a municipal shelter with a contract that says they have to take in stray animals runs out of space, they have to euthanize animals. It's sad, but it's how many municipal shelters work. Even though we are no-kill, we see horrible things. We recently had a dog come in who was dumped on a farm and got into rat poison. She will recover, but what happened to her was horrible. At the beginning of the month, we talked with the editor of Eugene Weekly about the paper's struggle to recover from an embezzlement scandal and total staff layoff. Missy Mark said, This paper is vital to our community. It's the only paper in Eugene that still publishes letters to the editor. And Craig and Greg Dingler wrote, Hope the paper becomes financially sound and back in business. Finally, we talked with a group of neurodivergent teachers earlier this month about their experiences in the classroom and the challenges they face in getting resources for both their students and themselves. Laura Moore wrote, Thank you for this episode. As a neurodivergent educator, I felt seen in a way that I had not even realized was impacting me until I listened to this discussion. 
We always welcome your emails and comments in whatever form. Our address is thinkoutloud at opb.org. Our voicemail number is 503-293-1983. On Facebook, we're at OPBTOL. Thanks, Shiraz. You're welcome, Dave. Tomorrow on the show, seniors who live at a mobile home park outside of Vancouver have filed more than 100 complaints against their landlord with the state attorney general's office over the last seven years. But with huge rent increases and their community up for sale, their future is now uncertain. If you don't want to miss any of our shows, you can listen on the NPR app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Our nightly rebroadcast is at 8 p.m. Thanks very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Dave Miller. Have a great day. Think Out Loud is supported by Steve and Jan Oliva, the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, Michael, Kristen, Andrew Kern, and Anna Sanford. Thank you.